get you. I'm gonna get you to hear. Stand still till I put my hands around your little white throat and squeeze and squeeze until you're dead. Who's in this room? Well, Doctor, do you agree it was the bat? In my report, I shall say the death was caused by the same technique used in the other killings. A paralyzing blow to the throat, followed by severe lacerations of the jugular, resulting in excessive hemorrhage. In a layman's language, he didn't know what hit him. Oh, he knew. But he didn't have time to think about it. I'm Tim. This is Music for Films, the underground film podcast. And you can hear Joseph Benny's epic version of the Adam West 1966 Batman theme uh, as though Adam West had been in a Christopher Nolan film. Wouldn't that be amazing, Shruti Narayan Swami? Certainly improved the films. A kind of amazing mashup of, of the kind of upbeat, optimistic 1960s. Rock'em Sock'em, Kapow Batman, with the gritty, mordant, serious, politically conscious Christopher Nolan Batman films. Yeah, I want, like, Adam West to come from behind Bane. I'm just going to, like, a whack on the back of his head and go, oi. You interest me, strangely. I accept your invitation. So what this podcast is all about is imagining kind of mashups of Batman. So Batman is obviously a comic book character invented by Bill Finger and Bob Kane in 1935 he first appeared. But one of the inspirations for this comic book character who more than 80 years later is still part of our culture, part of pop culture, one of the inspirations were two very interesting films one a silent film, another a talkie remake by the director Roland West from 1926 and 1930 respectively. So not that far apart. Not at all. And uh, The Bat is based on a very successful 1909 thriller novel by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, which was published in 1909. That was then adapted by Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood to be a Broadway play in 1920, itself a big hit. The director of these two films, Ronan West, was a big fan and wanted to ad adapt it as a silent film for Hollywood, but he wasn't able to get the rights. So he made a film of a different play, but one which was very much kind of uh, mimicking the success of The Bat on Broadway, which was The Monster. So he made that with Lon Chaney, uh, but then the option to make the bat as a, as a silent film came up, so he made this film. And there are things that we'll see in looking at these movies where you'll go, oh, look, that's where Bob Kane got the idea for that thing in Batman. Yes. And also things just about the kind of... Uh, the special ingredients that have gone into Batman as well, I think you can see in these two films. So this is going to be quite a short little kind of lucky dip. We won't look at both films in depth. We'll just look at some scenes and have a bit of a chat. And in part two, we will look at two more versions of The Bat. We'll look at the 1959 version with Vincent Price in. And also, very interestingly, the year after that, in 1960, there was a TV version of the play with Jason Redbards in. Uh, so that was, that was in the, uh, the Down Mystery Hour. So we'll look at those two in part two. But this time, we're just going to look at these two Ronan West films. But I just wanted to reflect before we 
dip into the films on just how huge Batman is. Uh, obviously, I'm, I presume growing up in Bombay, you knew who Batman oh, was yeah. and he was kind of part of Indian culture. But looked at as part of cinema and pop culture, what's the deal with Batman? Because the thing you can't really avoid, whether you like superhero movies and you like these Marvel movies or not, is it's an 80-year-old property which generates startling revenues for Warner Brothers, who, who own the rights. So pretty soon we're going to have a second series of Batwoman, but with uh, Javinga Leslie as the first black actor to play the role. So we'll have a black Batwoman. We've got the Robert Patterson new version of the franchise. Which sounds amazing. It looks great. Yeah. It does look amazing. Another thing which I saw today was I watched uh, Christopher Nolan gave a interview. Well, obviously he's worked with Robert Patterson recently on uh, Tenet. And he said, look, this is just going to be great. Patterson's a great actor. Every generation reinvents Batman. It's time. So it's got Christopher Nolan's blessing. That means that this quite out there idea for the Flash movie, where they're going to try and have every living actor who's played Batman in a movie. That's a lot. So the hope is not only to, to have Keaton back as a kind of older Batman who's going to be a kind of mentor to Ezra Miller's Flash, but there's hopes that Christian Bale's going to come back. Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck's going to be as in the it. the Batman that disappointed everyone, including people in the film. But it's possible that, you know, after the Snyder Cuts on HBO and after this Flash movie, maybe the world will learn to love Batfleck. Yeah. And Val Kilmer might even come back for it. Uh, the other piece of casting which is being rumoured, which is amazing, is uh, who do you think the Superman would be in uh, on Earth 89, the, the Keaton Batman world? Don't know. Nicholas Cage. It's, oh, it's possible they might have oh, Nick Cage boy. actually. We are going there. Tim Burton yes. was going to make a Superman lives with Nicholas Cage in and then that didn't happen yeah. and there's a whole documentary you can watch about that. But yeah, sorry, I've I've got off the point which is you've written quite extensively about this very interesting documentary and an, an Indian film that documentary is about Superman of Malagon. Mm -hmm. From your perspective why is Batman so popular that they just keep bringing him back and ne people never get bored with him? So I watched the first Christopher Nolan film with Heath Ledger in um, The Dark Knight in the cinema with a friend of mine who fell asleep during the film. But um, So we had to go and find a cinema where they were playing the film in English without dubbed Hindi dialogue. And it was one of my first film experiences where it was really noticeable that the not only was the cinema full for an afternoon viewing but it was also just younger people and millennials I think the Dark Knight franchise when it came in, in India it was sort of like the perfect timing because more multiplex cinemas were coming in which meant that exhibitors could invest in um uh, bigger Hollywood budget films without having to make the choice of should we run a Bollywood film or should we run something like The Dark Knight because you know I mean yeah it's a superhero film but it was one of those early films before the superhero boom that we are in the middle of today and it was quite a dark film so I was surprised to see how many people were there in the cinemas but so it came in at the right time where when lots of young people or younger people my age had internet access, so they'd grown up with uh, not just having wider access to these characters, but also reading the comics themselves, probably, and being just more switched on to Hollywood and the culture around it. So multiplexes, younger audiences, and specifically these younger audiences wanting to watch uh, edgier films. I can't speak to the popularity of Batman before Dark Knight, but after that film release, like, yeah, it's it's uh, as big in India as you would expect in any other huge country. And there's a sort of tenuous connection for us to Christopher Nolan in that P.K. Nair, our friend who ran the film archive, the documentary about his life, Sailor of Man, made by Shivendra Singh Dugapur. Shivendra Singh Dugapur 
hosted Christopher Nolan yes. uh, in Bombay That's with right. a massive audience yes. of, as you say, yes. very young, very switched on. Yes. I mean, cinephiles, but also just sort of culturally literate. Yes, English-speaking, middle-class, upper-middle-class uh, millennials. Batman's become a kind of gateway character to a kind of millennial culture which isn't specific to any particular time. You know, it's still got elements in it of the 1930s. Yes. It's got elements of the 1960s. The Adam West character is yes. still kind of in there. Yes. Also the element of um, uh, kitsch around yeah, Batman the with, yeah. the, with Adam West. Before TikTok was banned in India, you know, it had one of the biggest user base of TikTok was in India. Uh, one of the biggest memes on TikTok was this guy who was basically dubbed as the Indian Joker. Um, so he would do lots of little skits as as the Joker, and it became like a huge global viral meme, not just like within India. Well, so what interests me about these two Ronan West films is they're from 1926, 1930. The rules about what's horror and what's comedy and what's a murder mystery and what's a thriller and what's a detective thriller, they're not particularly clear. No. So they contain within them all the elements that go into Batman. There are sort of expressionistic aspects of Roland West directing which are pretty clearly inspired by Murnau yes. and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yes. I mean, that's given that the film that Bob Kane said he partly took the idea from, which is the talkie, the Batman. Uh, the Bat Whispers from 1930. Well, there are shots in that where the stuff Tim Burton puts in the Batman movies yes. from Murnau, Nosferatu, Caligari. Yes. No, that's text. That's not yes. subtext. Nope. But also the campy vaudeville, you know, the, the maid who's scared all the time yes. and is the, jumping the up and down. With it. Yeah, yes. that, That's in there as well. So the things about, the Adam West things about Batman that people find a bit uncomfortable because it's not dark and serious but also uh, there is a real darkness I mean there are moments yes. particularly in the talkie which are genu Quite creepy. genuinely frightening again that's impressive a film from 1930 which still uh, packs a punch, packs a punch which, still, which still does deliver on its promise of being a frightening film so they're both on YouTube very often we're talking about films which are coming into public domain anyway so if you watch them on YouTube or archive.org you're not even ripping anyone off it's just all, it's becoming free stuff now. We live in this world where all these things are instantly available and you can watch them anytime you want. And hardly anyone does. And our mission at Music for Films, certainly with these kind of box set format shows where we try and compare two films, is to try and say to people, well, look, it's right there on YouTube. It's right there on Archive.org. Watch it. You know, it, they're 80 minute long movies. You'll have a good time. They're interesting. I think by watching these movies, in a way, if you like Batman stuff, you like superhero stuff, but also if you like the other genre which these films have strong influence, it's that kind of old Dark House movie, which includes everything from The Cat and the Canary, House and Haunted Hill, The William yes. Castle, that very, very campy film with Vincent Price in. In the hands of William Castle with House and Haunted Hill, it's as camp as I don't know what and it's silly you know when the skeleton comes out the closet yes. in the, uh, the house on Haunted Hill it's just daft and you know it's a fake skeleton and it's it's messing with you in the hands of Robert Wise with the haunting it becomes very with very a, real a master director that yes. is genuinely frightening yes. so why is that format so durable and also what do you take from it given that the horror tradition in your cinema is things like the Ramsey Brothers which is quite campy but which also has a kind of strong element I mean it's got musical numbers yes. and it's got cheesy special effects and usually quite ropey makeup but where particularly the erotic aspect of those films it's it not messing around no. they're quite like Hammer films in that yes. sense that particularly the sort of sexual element and the sexual threat is a real thing what do you take from uh, uh, something like the Haunting of Hill House. I thought Haunting of Hill House, uh, especially the success of it, I liked it. I thought it was quite slow. It's a slow burner. It's 10 episodes, and each episode is 45 minutes or so long. 
So there's a lot of it and I didn't expect it to go down so well uh, because we've, for the last few years, we've been sort of in the, um, in the age of the jump scare, whereas the Haunting Hill House is the opposite of it. So it was quite interesting because I thought it goes back to a lot of these uh, haunted house tropes. So it's relying more on um, the emotional threat and mm. then heightening things like the, the creaking floorboards and the doors and houses settling and making strange noises in the middle of the night. So it's going back to that sort of emotional dread of you know, you think that you move into a new house and it's going to be a new beginning, a fresh slate. And then the the real horror is that it's all gone wrong. So it was interesting that it went back to that the core of that premise instead of just relying on jump scare and scary makeup and all of those other tropes that we see, especially in releases that come out in uh, during the sort of October Halloween season. And we, ha- we also have to reflect on the fact that uh, Halloween and this October is particularly oh, grim yeah. for people. Oh, yeah. I mean, recording this on the day that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced that England's going back into a lockdown. Yes. And uh, looking at these two films, which are kind of the starting point of, of these haunted house movies, is interesting to me because with this Halloween, it's not about the purge and wearing masks and going no. out and sort of knocking on people's doors which is kind of more of a Batman thing it's much more claustrophobic you hear a creak in the house where's that coming from I would like to add here that um, uh, I watched a a film called His House which came out on Netflix I believe just yesterday the 30th um, and I highly recommend it and I think uh, that film also symbolizes why this format this sort of template works because it's a very sort of customizable template. So in his house, I, uh, uh, I don't want to spoil the film, to um, asylum seekers who managed to reach uh, the United Kingdom after experiencing a lot of trauma, um, uh, end up in an uh, immigration detention facility. And then uh, miraculously, they are uh, moved into a council flat uh, and then, of course, things start going wrong in the council flat. So, you know, if you, it, it's a, it, on one hand, it sounds like, you know, quite a sort of typical, uh, sort of, you know, tro- tropey kind of horror film. But the fact that the two protagonists are black, not British, are asylum seekers. What language do the characters speak in the film? So they speak uh, uh, Dinka. Dinka, wow. Yeah. That's so very they, interesting, yeah. isn't it? That you start so, to see those sorts of characters yes. in horror films. So now. Netflix pulls you in because you know when when you uh, when a film is advertised on Netflix, it also shows you four or five keywords. So this was uh, is being displayed on Netflix as horror thriller. So it's pulling you in with a haunted house um, premise, but then the film is actually exploring a lot of really dark stuff about um, asylum and immigration and racism. Um, and just the realities of Brexit Britain. The frame for both these still very popular types of sexy but scary movie, whether it's a guy with bat ears or devil horns who's looming outside your window at night and maybe he's there to harm you, maybe he's there to help you, but also, where did that creek come from? Yes. You know, they're, they're actually very old ideas. I mean, particularly with the... The haunted house thing that even predates cinema because uh, if you see automata from the 19th century those penny arcade machines you put yes. a penny in and I remember they used to have one in Bright Museum that um, they'd reconditioned and worked and you put the penny in and the bed goes up yes. and there's a devil underneath it and a cupboard door opens and yes. there's a ghost inside it yeah I mean it's uh, it's just uh, just about as basic and fundamental as horror gets that you feel scared in the place that you're supposed to feel most safe in well it's really interesting then that we're going to look quite briefly at these two Ronan West films I think we're just going to pick out a couple of scenes which having watched it we think are sort of tell us something about his filmmaking um, now these shows we make we're not really kind of doing spoken word wikipedia pages we don't tend to bombard you with a load of facts but i think it is interesting 
just to mention about Ronan West is quite an interesting, I would say, sort of instinctual noir director. There's always this question about, well, yes. what is noir? Because often people who are noir directors don't themselves call themselves noir directors, or they certainly didn't when they were making the movies. It's his use of shadows, primarily. Yeah, it's, it's that moment where you're not you know, sure whether the shadow is off, a, off tree branches outside your window or if those are the um, creeping, spindly, long fingers of Nosferatu, basically. And we'll mention, as we're looking at these movies, some of the kind of interesting and, at the time, very innovative and quite novel ways that he was approaching cinema. But it's worth saying that Ronald West is probably not remembered particularly as an influential or important director. If he's remembered for anything, it's for his connection to one of the major scandals in Hollywood of the 1930s, which was the death of Thelma Todd. Thelma Todd was a uh, woman actor, probably most recognisable to film fans as the college widow from Horse Feathers, the, the Marx Brothers movie. Uh, what, all of the Marx Brothers line up to sing that song. Everyone says I love you. The great big mosquito when he sting you. The fly when he gets stuck on the flight paper too says I love you. And they all sing it to her one at a time. It's quite sweet. If people recognise her, she's a quite well liked, I think quite well loved, mainly for that role. But she had a, a very turbulent last couple of years to her life. So she was in a film for West. Uh, West began an affair with her, left his wife, who is in the first of these films that we'll look at, The Bat, Jill, Jill Carmen. Uh, he's playing the, the niece, the Sorongenie role. Uh, so West left his wife, had this relationship with Thelma Todd, and then something happened in 1935 they had they were business partners they had some kind of disagreement she went out to a hollywood restaurant had a fight with her ex-husband there and in the morning she was found dead in uh, her car in jill carmen's uh, garage and appeared to have asphyxiated uh, the police didn't find any sign of foul play there was no sign of violence or a struggle so Ronald west wasn't implicated as having murdered her but there was always this doubt and actually the police in their report said it should be further investigated oh what does that boy. mean but yeah. as a result it meant that Ronan West for the rest of his career and the, and the remainder of his life he always had the shadow of Thelma Todd's death hanging over him and quite sadly at the sort of end of his career he went into a kind of a decline and had a nervous breakdown and died quite an isolated figure in 1952 so um, there's also an element of tragedy attached yes. to these two films as well because he is a very interesting director. They're worth watching as pieces of yes. cinema. But as happens to people in Hollywood is that is their, their work gets forgotten and they're remembered because of the scandals. Which, uh, which scene should we look at for the bat for the first one? Should we look at the scene where the gun is going off? Yeah. So we have uh, the usual problem we have when we're narrating a silent film, which is there's nothing for the audience to hear. So yes. <laughs> uh, it's not ideal podcast material. It has to be admitted. But what we'll try and do is contrast this with the talking version of it in a minute. So we've got two characters, one played by Jill Carmen, saying, I want the blueprint. So there's a blueprint to the house which contains a secret room. The secret room itself contains money yes from a bank heist there's a detective here if you go up those stairs i'll call him jill carmen's character is saying to the owner of the house who's who's disappeared so there's this very sort of bold use of the intertitles that a shaft of light is beamed down this 45 degree stairwell and then written across it in cursive is give me that blueprint so something that would normally be uh, in a separate title card happening within the film for the audience but for the characters within that film it's outside of the narrative so to speak but this is what I would say um, is it a diegetic yeah. intertitle 
there's a risk of us getting really sort of nerdy in film <sighs> yes. studies scholars about this but what we're talking about is if you think about comic book frame the speech bubbles or the bam kapow in batman is not literally there in space yes uh, now it is in that check film who's going to kill jesse yes which plays on this the fact that in comic books you have things in the picture which you are imagining and seeing with your mind but yes. which are not meant to literally exist but this is very interesting given that this had a big influence on bob kane and batman i wonder if bob kane saw the silent version before he saw the talking version didn't remember but this is a comic book technique literally they've written the bit of dialogue on the on the frame yeah in the scene instead of uh, an intertitle card very interesting so and also it's implying where the where the sound's coming from yes it's coming from the top of the stairs and then then the text disappears and you see this hand with a gun so and you only see the hand with the gun and the rest of the shot is dark and there's uh, this thing in cinema particularly this period of a numinosity uh, there was that Guru Dutt film that we saw Biasa. Biasa, where he again it's it's kind of to do with uh, one source of light yes that he walks out of that doorway in that cinema and is sort of lit from behind yes yes so in yeah so in that film it's meant to he's meant to be the sort of symbol of purity and integrity in a dark world so he literally is the source of light whereas here it's a nemesis yes it's an it's an antagonist of unknown moral proclivities and it's also death because then there's a gun and as we're about to see this poor man he's come back to his house to try and find this money beautiful uh gunshot and the, all the the smoke from the the flare from the from the gun and he falls over and now his jewel doing her kind of a really good Mary Pickford Lillian Gish oh my god yes I'd like I'd like to read the book it's based on the circular stairwell because apparently it's in the idiom of if only I had known then what yes. I know now yes. and things are seen in this film from the perspective very much of the aunt played by Emily Fitzroy who, who's rented the house but also Jill Carman's character the niece that in the I think in the book Things are more obviously from the women's point of view. So we skip forward to about 39 minutes in. So we've got this sort of gang of detectives, including here's the oh, this Japanese butler played by Soji, the Japanese actor. He's so racist towards his character. Oh, it's really yes. awful. But I think he's very good in this film. And he's a very, Soji's a very, very interesting presence in Hollywood films of the silent era. He's in The Seven Samurai. Quite an upgrade from this. It certainly is. So they're they're wandering around in this dark house, and we've got the sign of the bat, which is this silhouetted bat in a circle. It's the bat it's signal. The bat it's signal. literally the bat <laughs> yes. signal, which makes me think that Bob Kane must have There's seen the silent no version. Way. There's no way that the bat signal isn't inspired by this. Which also makes you wonder, going back to that slanted cursive writing which is yes. diegetic rather than non-diegetic whether he picked up on the fact that this is kind of a comic book yes. movie in the sense of literally using certain comic book techniques or what would become comic book yes. techniques but it's interesting that the way that we see the the symbol here it's almost like you know you're seeing the mark of the beast or something a bad thing which then but in the batman franchise it becomes you know what you shine when you need Batman to come and save But there's you. also something ominous about it. Yes. There's something about, yes. you know, things have got real to the extent that we have to call the Batman. Yes. And they're going to play on this in the Robert, Robert Patterson movies that the public in the Robert Patterson movies we gather are going to regard the Batman as almost like a serial killer. Yes. That he's someone that the public is scared of. It's only the police. Yes. And that's interesting because there's kind of an element of Margot and an element of Donald Trump of like, well, you know, strictly speaking, what we're doing isn't really lawful, but you've got to do what you've got to do to get the bad guys. Um, I wondered the extent to which 
whatever happens with Trump in the next couple of days, because obviously the US election is now uh, a done deal on, on Tuesday, whether Trump stays or whether Trump goes, he's going to cast a long shadow. And you wonder if in those Robert Patterson movies, they're going to kind of play on the grey moral yes. area about the law, which is something that's been very much to the forefront, forefront in American culture for at least the last four years. Well, that's very interesting. Would you like to take a music break? Yes. Well, we've been talking about Batman in the 1920s, which of course is about nine, nine or ten years before the Batman comic happened. The gestation period for Bob Kane to see these two movies and then for the Batman comic to happen was about a decade, a bit less than a decade. So the 20s is the year of hot jazz. Uh, but let's, shall we go back and look at uh, 66? Shall we look at the kind of world of psychedelia and Batman? Mm, when, let's do it. When, you know, Batman swung like a pendulum do. This may surprise you. It may even shock you. But can you guess which psychedelic luminaries are responsible for this quite out there collaboration with the boy wonder himself, Robin Burt Ward? Please, boy wonder, please come next Saturday and sleep for a week or two. I will feed you breakfast in bed. I will make your bed for you. And I like you so much that I want you to spend the whole summer with me. I hope you know this is a girl writing. So this is from Burt Ward's autobiography, Boy Wonder, My Life and Tights. I should have had the wisdom I now have when I signed a recording contract with MGM Records. I wouldn't have signed it. MGM staffer Tom Wilson was assigned as my producer. He brought in one of the visually wildest groups imaginable as my backup band, the Mothers of Invention. Oh, <gasps> no! What a sight, Neanderthal. They had incredibly long, <laughs> straggly hair and clothes that appeared not to have been washed in this century, if ever. <laughs> These were musicians who became famous for tearing up microphones and even their expensive guitars on stage. They were maniacs. Of all the people in the world to team with this wild and crazy bunch, I can't believe I was the one. The image of the boy wonder in all his American and apple pie, while the image of the mothers of invention was so revolutionary, they made the Hells Angels look like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Even I had to laugh seeing a photo of myself with those animals. Their fearless leader and king of grubbiness was the late Frank Zappa. The full name of the band was Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Holy shit. After recording with me, Frank became an internationally recognised cult superstar, which was understandable. After working with me, the only place Frank could go was up. <laughs> Although he looked like the others, Frank had an intelligence and education that elevated him beyond brilliance to sheer genius. I spent a considerable amount of time talking with him, and his rough, abrupt exterior concealed an intellectual, creative, and sensitive interior. Damn. Oh, to be a fly <laughs> on the wall of <laughs> Burt Ward rapping wow. with Frank Zappa. Yep, yep, my mind is blown. Yep. So you'd like to believe that Frank Zappa's collaboration with Burt Ward would just be... Delightful. Just mint pure gold. Hacha. the sound of pure horror. Burt Ward massacring uh, the standard best known for its version which you can hear now by Nat King Cole under an orange colour sky. Uh, that sounded like one of the ideas that they left on the cutting floor for the American Horror Story and if you know American Horror Story you know that they don't leave any ideas on the cutting floor so wow. Now, if you need to have a kind of mental palate cleanser that's still Batman-themed, bat-oriented, would you like to hear Adam West doing his version of that as Batman? Yes, I would. Our evil crooks came by I was singing a song Drinking in sunshine Acting as friendly as to be Crunch! Plop! Crack! There's also a version that Linda Carter, Wonder Woman, did on The Muppet Show, if you're interested in it. It's an interesting song for us as musical films, 
because Under an Orange Coloured Sky was written by Milton DeLug and Willie Stein. Milton DeLug is rather like Gil Malay, who we talked about in our Andromeda Strain uh, music performance box set. Very interesting musician. He started off as an accordionist, but he went on to have a TV and film career, which is basically a CV of the 1960s and 1970s. So uh, he produced Buddy Holly's Rave On. Wow. He was the band leader, not only for Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, but also on The Gong Show. And uh, I'll put a link in the blog, but if you go online, you can find a five-minute outtake of them warming up for The Gong Show and Chuck Barris just being really dismissive to the musicians. And he also produced... A, a tremendous number of TV themes and he mainly worked in television but he did some he did quite a lot of movie work as well one of the themes which you can hear now as the sound bed is he came up with the theme for Ilya Kuryakin and the Man from Uncle quite delightful yeah. it's kind of Nelson Riddle on the Volga yes very very versatile composer uh, who in movies and this is where as well as the sort of tenuous link to, to Batman and Frank Zappa we can link Milton Delug and this song Under an Orange Colour Sky to Kay Gordon Murray oh boy the American producer who imported very cheap foreign films, mostly Mexican films, and turned them into kiddies matinee films. So Milton DeLug did the music for Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Wow. He also did the music for the American edit of the Rene Cordoba Santa Claus movie where Santa Claus meets Satan. I think if we do another one of these shows as a kind of treat for people at Christmas, because at the moment, God knows everyone needs diversion... Uh, we should do a similar thing like this, but about Santa Claus Conquers the Martians and the Santa Meets Satan, Manny Cordova film. Yes. I'm you up for it? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm all for Santa non. I mean, clearly Santa's always been a global conspiracy to Satan. Do you, have, do you wish to say a few words about Kay Gordon Murray and the influence he's had on your life? Um, just that... Uh, you introduced me to Kayvon. It was part of our courtship, actually, yes, wasn't it? Yes, it really was. It Little Red Riding Hood versus the thing. monsters. Um, and since then, I have introduced that film to several people I know, and it has never failed to make an impression. Inexplicably, those friendships have endured. Yes, they have. They're all the more stronger for it. Well, it's like you know, any kind of trauma bonding is like that, really, yes. isn't it? Uh, Little Red Riding Hood versus the monsters is a film which. Once seen, cannot be unseen. Yes. He also made several LPs of sort of horror, comedy, monster kid stuff, psychedelic garage rock. One was of TV themes, Monsters, Mummies and TV Friends. And another, which you can hear a track from now, The Chase, at the Monster Ball, which... I like because it all kind of leads to that uh, Happy Monsters yes. album where the band in that was the Incredible Bongo Band uh, who obviously are very important including to hip hop because yes. Bongolia and uh, their cover of Apache was was looped by early hip hop DJs. But yes, those kind of horror comedy albums where you could produce stuff that was sort of to do with Frankenstein or sort of to do with Dracula. So... You could sell it to kids because kids thought, kids thought Frankenstein was cool. Yes. But Universal wouldn't really come after you. And in a way, Batman's kind of like that because Bob Kane took lots of different elements. Sherlock Holmes, the Scarlet Pimpernel, these movies, some pulp characters, the Black Bat. I mean, there was a range of different things that he drew on and he kind of put together into this one character. Can you imagine uh, the Batwoman from the wild world of Batwoman? Oh, Yes. Bugging out yes, to this I by can, the pool? Yes, I, yes. A non party happening on the side of the pool. For some reason, I'm also picturing them in one of those uh, wool bikinis. Lots of frogging. Wool yes. bikinis and frogging is very much uh, de rigueur in the wild world of Batwoman. It's, 
the stuff of all of my leopard print nightmares. <laughs> well, I think it's time for another mental palate cleanser, and I think we should return to the 1920s and the world of not only jazz, but hot jazz. Hot jazz. By a strange coincidence, I have lined up... Just the right thing. ...which is Mojo Strut, played by Tiny Parnham and the Parnham Picket Apollo Syncopators. Parnham Pickett Apollo Syncopators, that was J.D. Gray on drums, Charles Lawson on trombone, Tiny Parnham himself on the piano, uh, Booker Winfield on coronet, and Edward Dolph on the clarinet and sax. Tiny Parham is uh, not particularly well-known exponent of jazz from this period. Very interesting guy. He was from Winnipeg in Canada. We often forget there are black <laughs> yes. people in Canada. Yes. Uh, after this, having recorded... Quite a few platters. Uh, if you're interested in looking for this one, it's Paramount 124413. I mean, it's, you know, you know when that song plays, some fun and mischief is afoot. All kinds of shenanigans. Yes. The Victor label didn't renew Parham's contract after this, which also occurred to King Oliver, Jelly Roll Morton at the same time. I mean, it's a scandalous thing that the early record labels issuing jazz were just treating the musicians basically as work for hire. Yes. So after that, he became a theatre organist, mostly, uh, and he died in Milwaukee in 1943, aged 43. Wow. Quite tragic, but I think now he is a bit more recognised. Robert Crumb has done a delightful set of trading cards of heroes of early jazz, and Tiny Parham is one of them. Uh, Very nice. Also... It sort of reminds me of Betty Boop cartoons. Yes. And Betty Boop and the Fleischer Studios takes us sort of into the world of those amazing early Superman cartoons, but also kind of the world of Tim Burton. Yes. And the Bruce Tim Batman, the animated adventures from the 80s and 90s, and that much more kind of classic 30s, 40s influence sort of noirish Batman. The second version of the Bat, which Roland West made, which is an early talkie, 
uh, is kind of in that world. Uh, so we're going to basically com compare the scene we just looked at in the silent version with the version in the talky version. But I suppose we should say about the difference in how Wes made the films that this talky version includes some technical innovations which are interesting. So one interesting innovation is that this was one of the first widescreen films and Roland West used many widescreen techniques that weren't used again until the 1950s. Yeah, I, I can see how that combination of him using widescreen and those uh, incredible tracking shots, there are several very nice tracking shots in this film, he you know uses that to his advantage very well. So even, uh, even though you can see that a lot of these sets are models, uh, because I'm guessing the uh, because it's in widescreen and the way he shot them uh, they the scale looks quite realistic there are amazing shots of uh, the camera tracking all the way down from yes. the top of the building like the Empire State Building then going into a window yes. and there's another amazing shot where um, a character is pursued through yes. a garden without with, cuts without cuts there's lightning yeah. happening with its use of pans tracks the previous film, the silent version, has got some very interesting dissolves and close-ups. Yes. But he's, in his way, quite an innovative and quite ingenious director. And just from that standpoint, I think it's a shame that these films aren't better known because actually these innovations in in any art form don't spring ex nihilo out of a void. No. It's actually lots of different artists trying different things and they make a little incremental improvement and someone else sees that and they go, oh, that's a cool technique, I'll use that. Now, Ronan West is one of those directors. He's not a particularly amazing director, but he's not a bad director no. either. I mean, this is, I think, both films. Is it safe to say we enjoyed them? Yes. There are things that we can also briefly mention about West's uh, technical innovation in filming these two films. The assistant cinematographer on The Bat, the first of these two films... Uh, to cinematographer Arthur Edison was Greg Tolland who filmed Citizen Kane. Oh, okay. Which, once you then get onto the the movie we're going to talk about now, the start of the Bat Whispers, where you have that amazing crane shot of a model of a building like the Empire State Building, and then yes. it shoots all the way down and goes in a window. It's kind of like shots in Citizen Kane. I mean, were there conversations between West? as early as 1926, which Tolan was party to. And, it, you know, it's so tempting to speculate, isn't it? But then with this movie, The Bat Whispers, as well as these beautiful model shots and these very interesting tracks and pans, keep in mind, in 1930, cameras were heavy. They were so moving cameras around on a set was not easy. And yes. it took presence of mind to be able to do that and, and to get the footage. Assisting the cinematographer on The Bat Whispers... Charles Klein came up with a 24-foot dolly. Wow. <laughs> which could move the camera 18 feet in a second. So somewhere in this movie, if you watch it, there are shots where people are on a roof and they're hanging onto a rope and they fall a long way. They built a 24-foot dolly to do that. I mean, well, you know, I mean, if you are, if you are um, doing something like that with your camera... Um, you know, you don't want to do that a hundred times. You probably have to get two takes. So uh, the cast having to do all these physical stunts as well, like that must have taken quite a lot of sort of synchronised sort of effort to make sure it was perfect. And I think another aspect of this film, which we found very interesting watching it, was to remember it was based on a very successful Broadway play, which would have been, I would assume, a three-act play with one set. yes. With these two movies, West is, and he's already made a version of this with Lon Chaney in The Monster. He's moving the action all around yes. these different rooms and different environments, and you go outside the houses. It's got this kind of interior claustrophobia, but quite ingeniously, he's using sets and angles and repeats of some shots as well to increase the claustrophobia yes. you feel kind of trapped in this kind of Escher-like maze in some yes, of these that's right. sequences uh, which again it would be a shame if these two movies are only remembered as a footnote to Batman Yes, that's not taking anything away from the fact that they inspire Batman because Batman's important whether you like or don't like superhero movies 
they are hugely important to popular culture and, and to movies. But it would be a shame if Ronan West is only remembered for his relationship with a, an actor who very sadly died and for kind of inspiring Batman. He's an interesting director. You know, he, he did an early movie with Greg Tolland, aspects of which kind of look like Citizen Kane in quite an interesting way. So, I mean, I'm sort of prefacing the end of this podcast now, but it's been fun watching these. Yeah, and it's been... Uh, the, the Both these films, both versions, have quite genuinely quite spooky moments, but they're not bleak, uh, which I think a lot of people are, would, might be looking for something like that to watch this time of the year, something that's still a little spooky, but not actively depressing. I w- we should say, without without spoiling it, but the end of the Bat Whispers is quite sweet. Yes. It's quite, it's an endearing yes, end to it. Yes, it. it's, yeah. And it kind of reminds you of Frankenstein as well in yes. a lot of ways. Yes, It's a bit stagey, but it's good. Yeah, but also, you know, breaking the fourth wall as well in a very early film. Well, the end of it, actually, uh, without spoiling it, but if people are aware of the restored version of Jean Renoir's The Golden Coach, it's exactly the same. Yes. Something which I've enjoyed about this uh, and I just wonder what you think about it. it's just comparing a silent version of a of a script with a talky version of it because a lot of the dialogue is recycled like the maid's line about I stood with you through socialism theosophy uh, but I draw the line at spookism that gets recycled there's a, there's a couple of little kind of comic bits that, that they redo it's actually interesting at least to me to watch both versions when they're only made four years apart yeah. from each other there are quite a few silent movies that were remade a couple of years afterwards which I, I've meant to watch side by side and this is one of them and I, I would encourage people they're on YouTube they're on archive.org you can watch them right now you can yeah. stop listening now and I mean, just go and watch them but I think a lot of people might be sort of cynical and think that the making a talky uh, remake of your own film sounds a bit like a cash grab Mm. i can imagine that if you were a filmmaker who made something right on the cusp of sound becoming available uh, of course you would want to see that oh you know maybe i can try out those ideas that i just simply wasn't able to when i made the first version and we we also have to remember that studios didn't know what was going to work so what's another big film influence on batman the man who laughs yes but uh, the man who laughs is a universal picture with Conrad Veidt in as a guy who's um, a deformed with this sort of huge clown-like smile yep. um, made to be a circus freak but yep. that's the basis for the Joker obviously yep. Batman's main villain but it's easy to forget that the Lamleys made the decision of issuing The Man Who Loves as a silent movie in the talkie era Yes, it was right on the cusp of silent and talkies and they chose to make a silent film because they decided aesthetically that, that was the yes, right choice. and, you know, it, it was. I mean, Conrad Voigt's performance in The Man Who Laughs is just as powerful as, as his performance in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yes. Uh, huge influence on Bob Kane and Batman, obviously, and that's a silent movie. But it could have been a talkie. They could have made that decision to make it a talkie instead. It's very interesting, isn't yeah. it? Okay, shall we watch this scene now from the 1930 talky version of the bat whispers so we're back in the same situation where the niece has run into the owner of the house because they're renting the house and he's come back clandestinely to find this stolen money and she's kind of confronting him at the foot of the stairs so something that you pointed out while we were watching this which i think is very interesting is there's no music yes and i wonder if the absence of music was a reflection of the fact that in the early talky period it just hadn't occurred to them that they should have a score or was it some kind of aesthetic choice on Roland West Park? Because yeah, he's roughing her up and we've got this light. At the, oh, and he's been there shot. And so we've lost, obviously, the kind of intertitle on the screen. But we've now got this very dramatic shot of um, the niece then sort of framed against a white background. And then the white background with the silhouette of the bat standing at the top of the stairs and the door closing. It's very ominous. I mean, it's still a good scene, but I preferred the silent version of it. Mm. Because in the silent version, you don't see the, you don't hear the gun go off. 
but you can clearly tell that her gun went off because it cuts from a close-up of the gun but also in that beam of light you can see the 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 flash and the smoke coming yeah out your of mind the gun. actually fills in the exactly. sound in the same way that when you read a Batman comic book. Yes. Batman seems like a real character yes. if you've grown up with those comics because you're so used yes. to you doing the voice yes. and you providing the patter and the, yes. the, the, um, the rhythm of how yes. he's saying things and the rhythm of the story. Yeah. And it's just quite an unnerving effect of seeing that a gun's gone off but you can't hear it but you see the man's body dropping Yes. Um, and your mind sort of fills that gap which is a lot more effective. So I think that something that West might have done quite deliberately is to have this be very talky and have quite long periods of silence, quite honestly, which make it seem quite slow. Because then you also get sequences, which we started the show with, actually, that very creepy sequence later on. And watch the movie, because yes. we don't want to spoil it, but like it, it is scary. But that scary sound of him creeping around the room in the dark and pursuing her um, it's very effective just like this shot now of the niece and um, the detective yes this is beautifully lit very very nourish yeah and you can see sort of uh, lights in the backdrop but they're sort of tilted so again it's sort of very reminiscent of the expressionist technique of things being at an angle Dutch angles as yes. they call them yeah so we've now got the, the old caretakers dropping a vase Oof. on this guy's head. There's an endless succession of people turning up at this supposedly haunted house to investigate. There's a sort of embarrassment of detectives in a lot of ways. Too many detectives. Often the way. So we've now got a sort of another comic foil, comic sort of male counterpart to the funny overreacting maid Lizzie well she does have some very funny lines another Dutch angle I like what West does with um, Chester's hair that he's got this sort of very severe shaved yes. side to his head and it's all swept back and uh, something happens with his hair to change how we see his character Yes. I won't say anything more than that but it's very effective. Think a creepy Friar Tuck. Or um, 1989 Johnny Depp versus 2020 Johnny Depp. Oh dear. But even though he's tried to make something which isn't film theatre and stagey, there's an awful lot of people standing around waiting for something to happen and people finding their mark oh this is an amazing uh, shot then, of him running know, through the garden with all so the lightning we, holding a gun yeah. wow so just as we're talking about people being in a room it immediately cuts to this uh, one character leaping out of the window belting it running through these gardens and it's it's just uh, done through an incredible tracking shot it just in instantly goes from being quite static to really dynamic and speaking of creepy use of sound... Oh, I feel somebody looking at us. Where? I don't know. I can't see them. I can see you. And if you're not out of this house by morning, you'll suffer terrible consequences. Look, Andy, the picture's moving back into place again. The Bat Whiskers, uh, clues mean, in the name. I'm sorry, but if you're uh, hanging creepy paintings like that in your house, you're kind of asking for, for creepy a people to yes. talk from behind them to scare all the temporary occupants who've rented it. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed watching these uh, two snippets from these two Ronan West films, and next time we shall watch the 1959 remake of this starring Vincent Price and also a 1960. Dow Mystery Theatre TV version with Jason Robards, which I'm very much looking forward to. Can we call these uh, uh, mini podcast chutkis? Just chutki. Chutki is just like tiny. Yeah. Any anything that's sort of meant to be like tiny. It's like a really small mouse. Yeah. Like a mouse that's smaller yeah. than usual. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Chutki. Why not? Yeah. Sure. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed watching these two films with you, Chutki. So did I. 
and uh, thank you very much and let's do it again sure there never was a jail built strong enough to hold the bat and after i've paid my respects to your cheap lockup i shall return at night the bat always flies at night and always in a straight line <laughs> <laughs> Our podcast is More Music for Films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice.